Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. This week it is a bit of a Book Shambles, Science Shambles podcast crossover. We recorded this live on stage at the Latitude Festival. It's a panel called The Magic of the Future, talking about science fiction and uh, the technology that's on the horizon. Uh, The panel was chaired by Robin uh, with Dr Susie Gage, Dr Lucy Rogers and author John Higgs on the panel. So we hope you enjoy that. And this is going to be uh, the last book shambles for a couple of weeks. We're just taking a couple of weeks hiatus because uh, all of us, the entire Cosmic Shambles team, we're going to be up at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for a couple of weeks. So if you are up there, uh, come and see some of our shows. We're doing six episodes of Book Shambles live. Robin will be hosting those. We have got an incredible lineup of guests. We have got Neil Gaiman, uh, Ian Rankin, Sophie Hagen, Mark Watson, Kerry Pritchard, McLean, George Egg, uh, and lots more as well. And they are part of the Free Fringe. So that means those shows are all free to attend. Uh, There's limited seats, so it's first come, first served, 5.30pm on the 17th of August and then the 19th through to the 23rd, 5.30pm at Bannerman's on Cowgate. So come along to those Uh, We're doing a benefit on the the 16th of August uh, at the Newtown Theatre in memory of Barry Crimmins. Uh, You may have uh, listened to Barry on Book Shambles last year when we had him on at Latitude or come to the benefit we did in Wimbledon last year for Barry and his wife Helen. uh, And tragically, we lost Barry earlier this year to cancer uh, while his wife Helen is still fighting cancer herself so we've got a, a benefit uh, on the 16th for Helen. Helen will be over. Helen Crimmins is going to be talking at that event and the lineup is uh, quite frankly incredible. Robin is emceeing. There's Reg D. Hunter. There is Sophie Hagen. There is Mark Watson. There is Amanda Palmer. There is... Mark Thomas, Angela Barnes, Janie Godley, Alistair Barry and Chris Stokes. Uh, it's one of the best variety, comedy variety nights you will get on the Fringe this year. So that's on the 16th of August. Tickets are only 10 quid as well in the Grand Hall at the Newtown Theatre. So come along to that. And uh, Robin's doing two solo shows as well. Uh, the Satanic Rites of Robin Ince and Chaos of Delight. So there's lots going on with all of us up at the Fringe, but that will mean no podcasts, no Book Shambles podcasts for a couple of weeks. But we'll be back after that. And we'll be at the London Podcast Festival on September 8th as well, doing a live show there with Robin. And a returning Josie Long will be uh, part of that live show. Uh, we'll announce the special guest for that soon. We're also going to be up at the Ilkley Literature Festival in October. So look out for us there. Lots of other live events and things happening on the website and all around the country as well, the United Kingdom being the country in question in so many ways at the moment. Uh, so go to cosmicshambles.com to check all that out. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles if you'd like to support the podcast. We've got lots of uh, special bonuses coming out for Patreons soon as well. And that is more than enough waffle from me. So on to this week's episode. Here is Robin and the panel. 
this is a brilliant panel. If you don't know who this panel, uh, hopefully you, you will know some of them. Uh, Susie does uh, an incredible, does many things, but a brilliant podcast called Say Why to Drugs, uh, which is looking into many different ideas of the, uh, the physical and psychological effects of drugs. Uh, uh, Dr. Lucy over there is uh, the founder of the Guild of Makers, and uh, also you may well know her from uh, Robot Wars, and she's an inventor, and John has written, I, th I reckon now it's two of my favourite books, at least. There's, uh, he, he wrote a, a, a brilliant book about why the KLF burnt a million pounds, which is, uh, in, has anyone here read that book, John, John's book about... The, at the back there, it's an amazing book, isn't it? Because when you read it, for the time that you read it, you keep having coincidences involving the KLF, right? It's all about the idea of synchronicity, and it really works almost as a shamanic spell at the same time as having a level of scepticism. And his last, well, not his last book, actually. His last book was Watling Street. Um, but before that, he wrote this brilliant book called Stranger Than We Can Imagine, which is uh, about really the, at the point of our discovery of the idea of wave-particle duality, uh, then all bets are off for the nature of the universe. In terms of dogmatic ideas of the universe, in terms of the solidity of the universe, once you have wave-particle duality connected also with the fact that we are no longer the centre of the solar system, connected with the fact that we are not a separate species that is entirely uh, aloof and alone from the apes, that we are connected to all of the other apes as well, that from that point onwards we're living in a probabilistic universe. So that uh, gives you some idea of who's on this. Um, and we are going to talk, first of all, well, I wanted to start with you, John, actually, which is about the idea of... When the, the magic of the future is partly from the idea of Arthur C. Clarke sometimes would mention the idea that uh, a technology or a civilization that is so advanced from uh, another one would appear to be a technology and a civilization which is magical, that we would not be able to connect it to uh, our, our own experience and believe there was a specific explanation. So... Before we move into the future, can you explain a bit, Stranger Than We Can Imagine is really a book that looks at that moment where for so, it's so counter-instinctual, the ideas that are there at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Yeah, and it came on so fast, it was so sudden. Um, up until the end of the 19th century, uh, pretty much all our great discoveries, our great innovations sort of made sense, right? Things like... Uh, electricity or photography or democracy or agriculture. We get them, we understand them. We might not know the details, but we have a sense of how they work. And then suddenly we hit the 20th century and it was bam, there's relativity. There's quantum mechanics, there's cubism, there's modernism, not just science everywhere, you know, there, there's chaos mathematics, uh, there's, there's existentialism, there's psychedelia. And these are all subjects that are just terrifying in some way. There's something quite inhuman about them. You just, you just think, oh, may, maybe, may, maybe I don't need to know about that. Maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll just miss those out. And when things start to make sense again, I'll sort of, sort of catch up. Because the more you look at them, the more confusing and counterintuitive and bizarre you know, they become. But if you, if you don't follow them, if you don't go with them, then you find yourself in the 21st century looking at it with 19th century eyes going, uh, none of this makes any, any sense, any sense. And it, uh, it seemed the simplest way to describe what happened was using this notion of the omphalos. Does people know what the word omphalos means? 
It's, it's, it's basically the center of the world. It's like the navel. Like every society had one. In, in, uh, in Greece, it was uh, Delphi. That was, the, that was the omphalos. That was the center of the world. For the Romans, it was Rome. Um, you know, in uh, Mount Fuji for the ancient Japanese, uh, Black Hills of Dakota for the Sioux Indians. Uh, and at the end of the 19th century, it was, uh, the, it was at Greenwich. It was the Greenwich Observatory, the meantime. That was the center of the world where every, every sort of longitude and latitude was measured from. Uh, and this was agreed uh, by a, a big international uh, de- uh, meeting, and everyone voted for it. And everyone agreed that was the center of the world, except the French, right? The French went, no, no, the center of the world is just in front of Notre Dame. It's called Point Zero, and and, uh, that's definitely it. And that sort of shows the whole problem is that these center of the worlds are arbitrary, right? We don't have anything that isn't arbitrary. You know, there is no one fixed point uh, from which we can understand everything. And that's really what we got from the 20th century. And when we lost that, when we lost that sort of... Uh, a sense of this rational uh, belief that time, space, the mind, that all these were fixed and understandable. That's when the 20th century kicked in, and that's when the fun began, I guess. Well, I'll ask actually both Lucy and Susie this, but I'll start with the, the, because at the moment we are in a, in a peculiar time, not merely politically, but also in things like the fact that the Flat Earth Movement, which I think many of us are desperate to believe is a situationist prank or a spoof. There really are people who believe in... I mean, I was chatting to a guy, uh, Michael Marshall, who runs... You, you, you'll know him, Susie. Runs the Merseyside Skeptics. And he said he went... He, he had a weekend where he went to a Flat Earth conference, immediately followed by uh, a day-long lecture by David Icke. And he, he's a, a strong... He's, I'm amazed he survived that. And he said, you know, he couldn't... He sat in a room and he really noticed people genuinely have gone, no, the Earth is flat and we've never been into space. And we've never stood on the moon. And... Is that the problem sometimes with the amount of information that we are connected to at the moment? And the fact that we cannot be an expert, if you're able to be an expert on anything, it will be on a very small area of whether it's physics or genetics or philosophy, that from that, that makes us lost. And in a certain way, we have to just go, right, I'm going I'm to pretend. If you believe that the Earth's flat, that means you don't have to read any other science, because it's all made up. It's brilliant. It's a, you know, Brian Cox a few years ago turned to me and went, if you gave them the evidence, then it would be fine. And now he feels a bit confused because he went, but I showed them the evidence and they still think it's flat. There was one chap recently from the Flat Earth Society who said, I'm, I'm going to prove that the Earth is flat and took a, uh, a balloon up into the edge. Of, he wasn't in it. Unfortunately, oh, not uh, like the guy with the rocket who was going to launch himself to do the same thing. That, that could well be, but they, they, they took photos from the edge of space showing the curvature of the Earth and said, "There, that proves it. It is flat." <laughs> so, how, do, Susie? Yes, you, I think it's really interesting, sort of psychologically, that we've we've got access to more information than than we've ever had in the history of humanity. It's all at our fingertips, and Yet it's, it's a time when more and more this kind of division and, and things that have the feelingness of truth, truthiness about them, they're so appealing. And when you can find someone or something who agrees with that or can, can spin a yarn that makes that sound convincing, that's so much easier than trying to get your head around quantum mechanics or, or 
understanding how your smartphone works, like we carry things around in our pockets that present company accepted. Most of us have absolutely no idea sort of how it works. If it broke, we wouldn't have a clue how to mend it. And we rely on these things. And I find that sort of, as a psychologist, I find that absolutely fascinating. I don't necessarily have any answers about why it is. Is it, is it something along the lines of, we know our parents must have had sex, but we just don't want to believe it? <laughs> Do you think, is, is this, what would you, is, as, as someone who you know, started the Guild of Makers as an inventor, that fact that we can't now, you know, it, it doesn't, you only have to go back a, a couple of decades, really, maybe three decades, and most things in your house, if you had the time and the wherewithal, you could mend them. You know, even those bulky old video recorders, if you took the top off it and you looked around, you would eventually go, ah, oh, it's that bit that's kind of eaten it all up. Whereas now, as, as, as Susie was saying, you know, what is the solution to removing that kind of thing of going, I have a box of magic and when it breaks, I don't repair it, I say, need new box of magic? Some of it's that the manufacturers don't want you to get into it. Um, the, the spares or the repairs is actually where they make their money rather than the actual selling it the first time round. So that's been a, an influencer on why we're like that. But we, we're, we're told not to fiddle. We, back in the early 70s, 80s, um, and if kids were getting computers, they were having to program them line by line. You bought a magazine and you typed it in line by line and if you were lucky, you had a tape recorder that you could record it onto and actually save it. But usually, as soon as you turned the computer off, it was off. But it meant that you got your hands on. You got your hands dirty. We are so now risk-averse that we haven't got the arts, the crafts in our schools. We, we haven't got the make-do-amend mentality. Because a lot of it is that was 1970s. Um, when I started primary school, everyone had a hand-knitted jumper. By the time I left primary school, if you had a hand-knitted jumper, you were looked down on because what, you can't afford a shop-bought one. So it's snobbery, it's um, looking down on the crafts because this is the way of the future. And it's, it's brought back the circular economy. We used to be able to fix things and now it just goes into landfill. S slowly people are beginning to look again into, let's see how we can fix things. Let's see how we can reuse things. What can we take off this car that's about to be scrapped and recycle? Can I just find out, out of interest, in this audience here, how many people at home actually have a workshop? You know, because I, I think there was a time where in a shed or whatever, there would be a vice and the hammers. So we got... That's a, that's a few. I'd say, yeah. That's not... It's still a lot... Like, I mean, there was Hello. a point where everyone's dad, on a Saturday, went to the workshop. And sometimes it might have been about the secret oily magazines, but it wasn't always. You know, there was, but that is, uh, we, you, I mean, I'm fascinated. Speak about your life. Well, it's not really my life. I don't have a workshop. I refer to my father. I, uh, that or the hollow tree. Um, so, Susie, I'll tell you what, we're, we're just move, moving to actually thinking about the future. And, and one of the things in terms of both, both, I suppose, magic in the future is, as someone who, who looks at drugs a lot, LSD is... That's something which... Can you give us a little bit of the history of that, first of all? Well, in terms of the history of LSD, there's someone who's probably got a bit more knowledge on this panel than I do who's written a book about Timothy Leary. But um, thinking about sort of psychedelics more generally, LSD is a bit different from the other ones because it was, it was discovered, whereas things like psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, and um, uh, what you get from the cacti in Mexico as well, these... 
these psychedelics uh, exist in nature and as such have been, well, there's evidence that they've been used for thousands and thousands of years, quite often in sort of ritualistic, Gnostic kind of experiences and often with the guidance of a shaman or something like that. They're, they're drugs that, are, that were used as a kind of a tool to greater understanding. And, and in some way, there's elements of magic within that. And LSD is obviously a little bit different. Um, I don't actually know that much about the history, but I imagine that you know a bit. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's, an in it's an interesting one when you're talking of the, the history of, of, of magic or the magic of the future. Uh, it depends how you define magic, of course. But I, I tend to think of science as objective and magic is, is everything else. It's the subjective sort of, sort of world. And you can fit in art and you can fit in all sorts of interesting things like that. Um, the subjective uh, part of our lives is the thing that science has a real sort of difficulty getting hold of. And um, what Timothy Leary, who was a Harvard psychologist who, who um, quite irresponsibly um, popularized the use of LSD in the 1960s, uh, he believed uh, that for, uh, to use it for therapy, um, the therapist would also have to take the drug and be part of it. It couldn't be objective. He couldn't sort of stand back and, you know, note their temperature and, uh, and you know, note what their pupils were doing and things like that because he, he just wouldn't understand it. He was just missing out, you know, absolutely the most vital part of it. And this sudden uh, interest in the scientific world uh, in, in psychedelics, LSD, ecstasy, uh, there's, there's really good reasons for it. There's a lot of things like post-traumatic stress disorder that it's, it's, it's proving useful. It's, it's people who have got terminal cancer uh, are, are finding it very, very useful. But it just, it just pushes science towards this sort of subjective, magical sort of world again. And that, that never ends well. It never ends well. It always crashes down horribly. So it's be interesting to see how that goes. Well, I know that when the uh, the the pioneers of LSD or popularising LSD, when they had their meeting about what were the mistakes they had made in the early 1970s, didn't they say the greatest mistake they made was not giving it to Richard Nixon? I think that's a kind of fascinating. But yes, Susie. Yeah. So there's some really interesting points there about the way that this kind of science into psychedelics as potential medicine or therapy was done back then and the way it's being done now. And it's really interesting you saying that, that the part of it was that the person doing the therapy had to take it as well. And it's why there's an awful lot um, of published studies about LSD from back then, but the quality of them is, is quite variable, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but now, um, I interviewed three uh, researchers who are undertaking research into using psychedelics or so it was psilocybin, ketamine and MDMA. Ketamine and MDMA aren't what you'd call classic psychedelics but they do have this kind of mind-altering property in a similar kind of way to psychedelics and actually some of the research that's going on now is incredible for all sorts of different things and there have been brain they've put people on psilocybin into brain scanners which I am um, so I was, I was in Bristol when, some, when these studies were being designed, and I don't know if anyone's ever had a brain scan, but you basically get sort of 
wheeled into this kind of quite narrow tube and your whole head is in you. You have to keep your head really, really still because any movement will affect how the machine records your brain and it will just create a blurry brain scan. So in order to try and get people who are tripping into a brain scanner, it, it, was, it was a bit of a work. So in a sort of attic lab in Bristol when uh, Professor David Nutt was at Bristol he was trialling this so he basically built a cardboard scanner and, and got people to practice in it to sort of see whether this was actually a viable thing to do but they managed to get it to work and what they found was that the um, sort of networks that you saw in brains on psilocybin were quite different to brains not on psilocybin and the connect there was far more sort of global connection across the brain compared to the more sort of targeted connections specific pathways that became that were more obvious in people who weren't on psilocybin and it's really difficult as you've said to do this kind of research it's like we don't understand anywhere near enough about the brain, about the mechanism of these substances, about, we don't even understand anywhere near enough about the things that we're trying to treat with them. So things like post-traumatic stress disorder, things like treatment-resistant depression, there's some really interesting studies using psilocybin to help treat treatment-resistant depression. Um, so we're already at a really difficult point, but there's some really fascinating results being turned up. And just speaking to the people who run these studies is really interesting as well because you don't just like have a trip and then everything's there's a, quite a lot of phrases often saying oh yeah you know you take you have a trip and it like flicks a switch and suddenly everything's better but actually the way these studies are run tend to be you take this as part of a talking therapy it's a tool that the therapist can use to either you have you talk while you're intoxicated or you have your intoxication experience quite often you're in a room sometimes they play you music sometimes it's pink floyd um <laughs> and you listen and one of the researchers what he said to me was that he often found that people were trying to sort of talk about their trip as they were having it and he said hey i, I wish i could do an impression of his accent he's got one of the, the best american accents i've ever heard but uh, that's that's your domain but he said hey guys it's like watching a film. You don't want to talk through your film. You want to watch the film so you don't miss any important plot points. And then we can talk about it afterwards. But it's interesting what you were saying about them thinking that the therapist had to be experiencing the same distorted mental state to be able to talk about that afterwards. Yeah. That's not something, as far as I'm aware, that these researchers are doing at present. It, it, ca it came down to, I think, Timothy Leary's first trip in Mexico by a pool on psilocybin. There was, um, this was in the 1950s, um, there was, uh, they had a scientist there and he was monitoring them uh, and he was sitting there writing down what was happening uh, and Leary had taken all these mushrooms and he just realised how funny it was that this guy was trying to record what was happening and he had no idea, he had no idea at all. That's, that's where it sort of, mm. sort of came from. Um, if you paint the inside of the CAT scanner with like rainbows and day-glow stars, <laughs> they'll go in it much easier. Yeah, it's just trying to keep their head still from going, whoa. That wasn't a Brian Cox impression either, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, Lucy, uh, just we're talking there a little bit about machines, about CAT scan things. In, in terms of the, the, the magic of the future, the speed in which we're seeing uh, the change of of machinery, of robotics, of ideas. For it. So, so I wondered how, how you feel at the, the fact that in te technological change, 
Are we moving at a pace which is harder to grip and grasp what we are being given? Is is there a point where, you know, that, that when you see pre the history of the 19th century, there are, are innovations, people are astounded for a while, and then they become... And now, people want to be, you know, they queue up at the Apple store every six months going, what are you going to wow me with now? And for half an hour, you go, wow, and then you go, well, it doesn't really work properly, actually. The touchscreen's a little bit broken. But for, you know, it, are we moving at a pace too quickly sometimes? With, uh... In many ways, I think it's actually stopped. So since the iPhone and the iPad came out, every other advance in that field has been software, not hardware. So it's not the, um, the actual physical item, it's what goes on inside the ones and noughts, uh, which we are doing with leaps and bounds. Um, imagine, imagine even five years ago saying, Siri, tell me what the weather is. Um, it, it would have been really difficult. That's going to throw everybody's um, phones now going, hello, I'm telling you what the weather is. Uh, so the software developments have been improving. The, the hardware, not so much. If we're looking at Robot Wars and those who put some kind of intelligence in their robots that either sensed that they were coming near the pit, so they wanted to back off so that they didn't fall down, or that there was coming up to a, another robot and so automatically fired their weapon. Those robots generally didn't do very well compared to the humans on their remote controls. So at the moment, humans on remote controls are far better, quicker, more reliable than actually relying on the sensing, the computing power and making sure everything still works oh that's it. just talking about that because you're talking about falling into holes and stuff like that. moving slightly onto artificial intelligence i was there was a, there was a book i read a while ago where uh it was it was explaining about the fact in fact it was someone at bristol um who's working this which is one of the problems that we have in terms of creating intelligence to make a decision uh an artificial intelligence is the level of emotion and they said they've tried it with, for instance, creating a, uh, a, a robot where its function is to stop something falling into a hole. And if it's one thing, it can do it absolutely perfectly. And if you have two things at it, it can't make a decision at all. Um, so just moving quickly, I suppose, on to artificial intelligence, that idea of decision-making machinery, what are the problems that lie in that? A lot of the problems are the human problems. The ethics, the... Um, which, which thing can you let fall in the hole? You've actually got to make a decision. If one of these things is going to fall in the hole, which one do I let? And if you don't tell me I'm, and, and I'm the robot, I'm going to be indecisive and fail, uh, which is one of the problems that they've got with the self-driving cars is if I'm going to have to crash and I can crash and kill one person or crash and kill five people, what's the decision that I make? Because I can make either decision very quickly, but I haven't got enough background knowledge to actually make that decision myself yet. And those decisions are going to be actually the decisions of the people who are programming it, rather than maybe... Um, so probably a, a software person who hasn't got the historical background, the um, sociological, soci that word, background on actually working out what should and shouldn't humans do, what is the ethical dilemmas, and they'll just say, well, obviously, it's this way, 
and program that in. So we've got a lot of we've got a lot of thinking to do. So are we and also is in part of the problem we're having with the future we're facing, which is we both wish to depend on machines, but at the same time we don't realise the dependency. Jamie Bartlett earlier today when he was talking about he's the author of The Dark Net and he's got a new book out as well, he, he said one of the worries we have is that we are just continually giving over uh, our responsibility to machines. So you do get a point. Siri, how should I vote? You know, that, now this to me was an interesting quandary where in one way we think this is where technology has got us, but we're missing out on the, the human face that is required. We are, but even the best um, AI robots at the moment, uh, there's one called Sophia, and the, the, they've dressed her up as a, as a she uh, robot. She's got citizenship of Saudi Arabia. And I saw one of the journalists ask her a question. And there, was, there were various questions going through, like, you know, tell me a joke. And some of the stuff was a bit pre-programmed. But one of the questions one of the journalists asked said, how long have I got to live? And she, quick as a flash, she turned around and said, 10 minutes. <laughs> Which, <laughs> you have 10 minutes to comply. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, we still don't know if that was programmed in as a joke or not. <laughs> how do you feel, John, your, your current book that you're working on at the moment is about the future. Yeah. You know, what do you see as the difference between what we can see as a utopian future from mm. some of the incredible... I mean, we do have this strange mix of incredible possibilities mm. when we see what vaccination has done, clean water and vaccine, and then we, again we have the other side of it, which is we have access to misinformation, mm. you know, which is incredibly readily available, uh, which is anti you know, How do you feel about that dystopian-utopian uh, contrast that we're facing? Yeah, I think the dystopian thing is... Uh, it's a quirk of my generation or our, our sort of generation, the, the, the baby boomers, the Generation X. Um, if, you, if you look at our culture, like mainstream culture, like Hollywood films, like at some point in the 1980s, we totally gave up on the idea of a future, right? And there's been no positive visions of a future in a major Hollywood film where you'd want to live you know, since it's like zombies, it's like it's like the road, it's Mad Max, it's it's apocalyptic. It's sort of the the last one I can find, the last positive vision of a future was 1989, and it was Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Adventure, and and the future was like it's a bit like now, but the water slides are better, right? That was the that was the best we could do to sort of come up with something, and this is really troubling if you think that to you know. To, to build a future, you have to first imagine it. You know, if we can't imagine a, a, a positive future, um, uh, and, and so and so, this was this was a big concern. But I, I, the more I look at the not the millennial generation, the the, the, the post millennial generation, the, the generation Z, and see how different they think to us, and they're they're, they're considerably uh, more uh, empathetic. The the the, 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 the the way they understand themselves as networks, not sort of individuals. They're, they're very, very, very different. Uh, and, and, and this failure to imagine a future, they don't have that problem. They really can do it. It's like there's just this wave of nihilism that sort of went across our culture, and we were smack bang in the middle of it, being all, all goth and like isolated and individual and like trying to be cool and things like that. Well, that's, I mean, there's uh, some, uh, uh, Hans Rosling, and I, I imagine quite a few people here have probably read his book, Factfulness, 
And uh, who here's read Factfulness? I imagine so. It's, it, it's a great book. There, someone from the Waterstones thinks they've probably got copies there as well. The um, it is an, it, it's fantastic. It's, it, for those of you who don't know, basically, um, he would go and do presentations where he would give multiple choice possibilities for statistics such as uh, the number of girls up to the age of 13 in uh, extreme poverty who got who had education up to that point and the availability of clean water and the available many of the different mortality rates and however much of an expert the groups of people he played to were they would always underestimate they would always go way lower and we are now and I wonder Susie I'll ask you this first of all because we're tapped into, because the negative is something which sticks, because we're, we're evolved to go, hang on, that's a bad thing, I've got to remember that. And the good things, it doesn't matter, it's all fine. You know, Hans Rosling showed that actually things have been getting better. And when people would sometimes call him an optimist, he would have that lovely bit where he said, I'm not an optimist, I'm a possibilist. All of these statistics show, so are some of our, our possible dreams of the magic of the future, are they being stymied by an evolved negativity from what we're being fed? It's an interesting idea, and I think there's other evidence for that. It's like Steven Pinker's written a lot about how we all think the world is getting more violent, but actually the opposite is true. But there are some things... I think humans are just really bad at this kind of sort of estimation ideas. So, like, we're bad at understanding statistics, which is very frustrating when you're trying to report about risk and health and drugs and mental health and that kind of thing like I'm really interested in. It's really difficult to do that with nuance because it's very, we're not designed to kind of understand that particularly well. Having said that, it's not always negative though. If you ask people whether they, like how intelligent they are, far more than 50% of people will say they're above average intelligence. If you ask people how good looking they are, far more than 50% of people will say they're above average looking. So about ourselves, we quite often are overly positive. And there's some suggestions that actually depression isn't um, having a negative bias on things. It's just that not having depression is, is having a positive bias on things. I was really, uh, what was I, I can't remember which book I was reading the other day, which was basically explaining that uh, those who do actually evaluate themselves with a level of reality are more prone to depression. That actually to be delusional and believe you are in the 90% that is an above average driver is, is a much better situation. Those of us who go, these are the things that I'm shit at, it turns out that's not good. So what I'm saying is, all of you, be a lot more delusional about your existence. That's I, the two I, messages we want you to take away from today. Be more delusional and take more LSD. So, um, I, what's I that think we have the, to stop now? I think, um, and, and not implying that any makers are delusional, but a lot of makers are realising that if they want something to, be, to exist, they've got to do it. They can't wait for, why can't they invent something? So the things I'm thinking about here, there was a military guy who was seeing um, that a lot of the soldiers were dying from out on the battlefield, were dying from lots of blood. And so he came back and he invented effectively a syringe full of tiny little uh, sponges that, you know, like those flannels that you put in the water and then they expand. So it was those kind of sponges and they expand and it's now been uh, medically approved and if someone has had a gunshot you squeeze this syringe full of sponges into the shot it swells up enough to staunch the blood flow enough to get them to the to the medics so this was one guy said 
that's a problem, this is a solution, let's do it. There's another lady who um, was fed up of getting cut up, excuse me, she was getting cut up by lorries on her, her pushbike. And she thought, well, they can't see me. I'm in their blind spot. Their, their blind spot's really long. So she invented a little laser projector that projects a, uh, a sign of a bicycle about 10, 20 foot in front of you. And this has been picked up by a load of the Boris bikes in London now. And you can see them as you're driving around London, walking around London. There's a little green um, laser picture of a bicycle 20 feet before the bicycle. Um, which, once you know it's there, it gets you out of the way of the bike. But actually, for me, it's like, oh, that's shiny. Um, not, not, doing, yeah, not doing so well. But again, that was one person's idea. She set it up on Kickstarter. It really took off, and it's been adopted. So sh these people have been positively affecting lives because they decided to. Susie, I was just going to say, I wonder if it's a particular cycling thing because there's again, this is a thing where we misunderstand risk. Is cycling will probably prolong your life rather than shorten it, but it does feel terrifying. And I'm someone who's been hit by a car when cycling. But I wonder if it's something about cycling that makes people inventive. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. Because I've got this amazing bike helmet that's actually got lights built into it and indicators as well. So I can press a button on my handlebars and it'll flash the indicator on my helmet. And I'd, it might look a little bit special, but it does mean I'm a lot more visible. So I, I'm, I'd rather that. <laughs> Um, I want to before I, I want to talk about smart drugs in a minute as well because I think that's a very interesting and genetics as well, which is um, just when you mention the sponges though, this is that's the bit where I find you know when you there's certain things I'd like to know from all of you where you do go that's magical. This is I, I, it's hard to like nanomedicine. When I look at for instance when, when I went recently and I saw how it works when someone's got a blood clot and how these small these nanoparticles can basically kind of just feeling like it's Donald Pleasance and Raquel Welsh, basically, in a mini submarine, turn up, break down the, the blood clot, and then they just kind of vanish like that. That, when I first saw a display of how that works, I thought, that is, that's magic. That's just, it, it's insane that these things can work on such a scale. And I wondered from all of you what, what you feel, those, those things that you look at and you think, that is something which goes so beyond what could be seen as common sense. Um, I've I've really uh, been impressed by uh, a lot of the VR stuff that that's been happening out there because it goes back to that first uh, that very first sense of magic, which was the storytelling around the fire of the tribe. It's basically I have this idea in my head. I'm going to put it in your head, and that's that, that's the act of it. Uh, that's the, the technology's evolved to the extent where I have dreamt and imagined this place. And now you're in there, and now you're absolutely in there, and it's and it's fascinating because it's um, it's so powerful. Things like news, like if you have news in VR, that shouldn't happen. It's like it's like VR is is it can imprint on you so powerfully. It can really make you think that oh wow yeah I've I've, I've watched this sort of news story about those people and they're definitely the enemy and they're definitely bad because you've been there. It's it's you know we 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 see the effect that um, all the fake news and everything we had in 2016 and and all the uh, Facebook news feed giving you all the um, Britain first memes and then everyone going out and voting for Brexit and all these all these the way the way people are sort of shifted. In VR, that is so much more uh, powerful uh, and effective. So you get the whole issue of trust in VR. Like, do you trust 
the people who've built the world you've gone into. I find that all really interesting. You, as someone who is, uh, you know, I know you've also read quite a lot of uh, uh, science fiction and imaginative fiction. I mean, I do find now that Philip K. Dick's insane paranoia uh, is far easier to embrace than it might have been 30 years ago. That does, you kind of, the certain, I know he basically, he writes the same paranoid story uh, over and over again sometimes. But each time you read the new one, you go, yes, now the paranoia means even more to me than before. Yeah, in, in the 1960s, people go, wow, this is so, so imaginative. And now you go, oh, yeah, Phil had this. You know, yeah, I've known four people who've had that same problem. <laughs> still not seeing the pink light. I'm annoyed. Lucy? To me, it's still the everyday that I think is magical. So watching the bubbles being produced um, here and seeing the different colours in it. Now, I know that the different colours in a bubble are due to the thickness of the, the, the skin of the bubble and the light ref reflecting, reflecting, refracting. But the fact that I know it doesn't mean it's any less magical to me. I use electronics every day, and yet still when I manage to write something that gets from something from over here, I switch a switch and a light switch is on over here, I think, yay, and I have a stupid smile on my face. It's, it's, still, it's still all magical. Yeah, it's similar for me really, but it's more about us. Uh, humans are magical. Like, and maybe we'll talk about genetics in a bit, but the idea that in every single cell in our body, there's the entire sort of blueprint for us. And that we have now found a way to at least start to read that. That's wild. And how, how like each cell starts off the same and, and becomes targeted to be skin or to be fingernail or to be liver or to be blood or what have you, like, that's magic have, has anyone here been alarmingly the, like a creationist here the uh, the welcome collection you have you seen they have uh, the, the 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 stack of books which are basically the whole of the human dna i don't know if you've seen it every a c t and g and i foolishly picked out one of the middle books it isn't full at all they haven't printed out the whole human dna so just so you, you know if you dreams. are planning on making a new human being using the welcome collections book collection well you'll miss out a lot of it you might not have legs anyway so um the, but, but that is, I agree, that is a remarkable thing. The idea of knowing the, the, the code of what it is to be a human and knowing that in each cell that is there. Now, where do you imagine, what, what do you think are the possibilities that are actually foreseeable? See, this is where I piss on everyone's bonfire a bit because we, we've decoded this genome, but actually... We're so far away from understanding what it means. There are a lot of places identified on the genome called uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms. And that's where one particular letter in this billions and billions of letters uh, in our genome uh, is different in some people than other people. And this is what we tend to, these differences are what we tend to look at when we conduct things like genome-wide association studies. So you might see in the paper that, oh, there's a study been done that's looked at what, how genetics predict something like height or depression or schizophrenia or any number of things these genome-wide association studies have been done. But actually, we're only looking at a very particular type of change that happens at these various points. The majority of, of DNA that we all have, we don't know what it does, and we don't know what happens if you change it. And 
the things that we look at are the things that change in a sort of significant minority of people so that we've got something to compare with between groups. But there are other ones that, that change ex exceptionally, exceptionally rarely. And so what are those doing? And there are bits where there's just loads of code that's repeated and some people have it repeated 200 times and some people have it repeated 2,000 times. Why is that different? And um, all these kind of things, we're starting to be able to unpick this. And we are learning loads about the genome. Like, I've sounded a bit down on it there, but we do understand. We, we thought there'd be far more genes than there are. And that's something that's really surprising as well. We thought, oh, there was going to be like thousands and thousands of these genes, well, potentially even millions, in in our DNA and they all do different things and actually what we found is that it's, it's vanishingly rare that there is a gene for something. There are a few diseases where th there are particular genes that cause this hereditary disease and they were very easy to discover but actually there's no gene for depression. There's a load of these single nucleotide polymorphisms, polymorphisms these individual letters that broadly, probabilistically, more of A's appear in people with depression compared to more G's appear in people without depression. But actually, it's by no means that everyone with depression has an A and everyone without depression has a G. It's in most cases. And, and why is that? We're still a long way from, from being able to answer that. So that's not really answered your question at all. Sorry. That's fine. The, uh, I... <laughs> I love someone described it when, when the, the human genome, when it, when, it, when it was first sequenced, they went, we thought we'd found it all, but actually it was the equivalent of saying, we have found every single letter needed to write Brothers Karamazov. Now we just have to put them in the correct order. Yeah. And is that still like the, that's the, the reading, that it's the equivalent of going, here's the bucket of letters to make the book, now you're going to have to start working out the I don't know, I reckon verbs. we've done at least the preface. Right. Yeah. It's a long book as well. The... Um, how do you feel, Lucy, we were talking about this a bit before, before we came out here, about the fact that with something like uh, genetics, with, with in some ways, I, I think it is quite a, the initial speed of, of reading the gene, the human genome is, is impressive, but then we also have the problem, which is once the information is out there, it can then be misread very quickly. We were talking before about the fact that, you know, someone who was advising Michael Gove, and uh, I apologise for saying that to any teachers in the room, it's amazing what it does to their face if you say Michael Gove. It's, it uses muscles of derision they didn't know they had. And, um, but at the time, Michael Gove had someone who was advising him that because uh, intelligence was genetic, we should start working on schools that had some gene-related. Now, that is a key... I, th I should imagine most people know that's a key misunderstanding of the murky area of ultimately nature and nurture. Lucy, do you sometimes feel that there is that issue with we are given information but we don't have the time to fully read up on it and therefore, again, it's about being misled and about learning the ways to make sure the possibilities of the future we read and ask the most pertinent questions? We've got a lot of things like um, robots are going to take all our jobs, um, artificial intelligence is going to take over our lives. Um, and the things from artificial intelligence, it goes back to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein of that was a scary book. Therefore, all artificial life is going to be scary. Um, but actually, taking... With biology particularly, it's a much... And humans... It's much more difficult to say this plus this equals this. 
Whereas mechanical engineering, uh, you generally have got, you know, the two plus two equals four with a factor of safety somewhere in that as well. But the, so, you know, to be able to say, if you use round wheels on your car, you will go faster than if you use square wheels, that's an easy one to say, it's an easy one to accept. The, it's the nuances that um, scientists and engineers will often say, well, yes, this could happen, or that might happen, or there's a percentage chance that this might happen, or we've just heard something, and, well, could that be uh, an alien that we've just heard, or could it be something else that we've never... Oh, it's everyone says it's an alien, it's an alien. So, yeah, we've got the difficulty. The, the one thing that really pushes it home to me is we couldn't have faked the moon landings because the amount of people involved, somebody by now would have said, here's the proof, here's a photo, here's some notes, here's my view on how we faked it. Uh, just look at JK Rowling when she was trying to write under a pseudonym. It, that didn't last very long. Someone... There's a great... In, in fact, we, we talked about it in, in, in the, 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 the Monkey Cage book that I wrote with Brian Cox, which is available over there after the show. Um, the, uh, we, David Robert Grimes did, has put this wonderful scale of how long you can keep a secret. So there's this kind of... So for NASA, I'm trying to work out what is the smallest number of people who could have been involved in the faking of the moon landing and at the same time work in NASA. I mean, the lowest we could get to is a, is a few thousand, isn't it? Yeah. And so yeah. all of them not to get pissed up one night and say, I'll tell you what, right, I've got a story for you, right? There's no way, is there? We, we say there's no way and then we think, well, actually, we didn't know about Bletchley Park. I don't know, I've just put the other side of it. You know, Bletchley Park nearly got lost because people even now are not telling the stories of what they did then because they weren't allowed to because we'd lose the war. So you're saying we didn't land on the moon? <laughs> you heard it not from me. Do you, do you know, there's a lovely... Uh, 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 one of my relatives, uh, my dad's cousin, Rosemary Bamforth, who died about two months ago, and she worked at Bletchley Park, and she was genuinely annoyed when it was no longer... Uh, so when it was made public. She was like, we were all worked there, and we all said we were going to keep that secret... And I feel it's, I'm a little bit annoyed that it's all been given away. It's, a very, it's an interesting other side to it. Sorry, John, you were... Yeah, I mean, the, the amount of people who, who died without telling their immediate family what they did in the war around Bletchley Park is, is high. It's a lot of people. And it was a guy called Gordon Welshman uh, in the 1980s who wrote that book, Hut Six, or, or I can't remember what the book was called, that gave it all away. And the, the reaction wasn't... Oh, great, right, now, now it's out. We can tell everyone, because it was brilliant what we did. We can tell them. The reaction was just fury. It's like, it was like there's a cult-like sort of, uh, uh, we will go to our, our graves without breathing a word. Um, so, yeah, they faked the moon landings. So David Robert Grimes' equation is rubbish. I wouldn't buy the Infinite Monkey Cage book. It's full of absolutely... Fortunately, the other one, The Bad Book Club, which is all about giant killer crabs novels, that's available there as well. And that's a lot... That is... I tell you what, my evidence about giant killer crabs in that book, Attacking the Coast of Wales, is nothing less than rigorous. Um, sorry, Lucy. 
I, I was just uh, going to, to, to repeat an urban myth I, I read on Twitter recently uh, where uh, a couple of old ladies were at a, uh, a friend's 80th, 90th birthday party and one said, oh, uh, I quite like these Sudoku problems. And the other one just turned around and said, yes, but it's nothing like Bletchley, is it? <laughs> so in terms of, we'll, we'll, we'll round up with where... What, for you, are you most optimistic? We've talked about the dystopian side of it. I, I mean, there's two things, actually, I'd like, which is, one, how each of you feel we can best get a good understanding of the possibilities of the future, and, two, what you feel you are most hopeful about. Again, returning to that kind of hands rosling those ideas that... Because I know that something that Stephen Pinker talks about in Enlightenment Now and something that hands rosling talks about is one of the most vital things is to not be in any way complacent. That we are, for most of us in the world, we are in the best situation that human beings have ever been in. But equally, there was a friend of mine who, uh, um, when they were dying, they were born in 1938, and they died three years ago. And when they were ill, they said, I'm very worried that I've had the best life that is possible to have. I didn't have to fight in a war. I saw the incredible technological innovations that occurred uh, throughout the 50s and the 60s, and a greater amount of emancipation. He said, and I'm worried. Now, with all those issues of, of, with, with, with climate change, with the speed in which misinformation has uh, spread, he said, I, I, I worry this, that I've had the best time. So those, those two sides, which is both, I suppose, you know, the, the optimistic side and the other side of it as well, the way we can arm ourselves. Well, that's similar to something Barack Obama said in 2016. He said, um, if you could choose, right, any point in history to be born, any point from the beginning of time to now, right but you didn't know who your parents would be. You didn't know what country you'd be born in. You didn't know if you'd be male or female or gay or straight or rich or poor. You didn't know. It was just totally random. You're going to be a random person born on this planet, right? You would choose now, right? And you absolutely would. If you, know, if you, if you look at all the data of um, uh, uh, poverty, famine, uh, the growth of education, for a thousand, thousand reasons, you would absolutely choose now as the best point to be born on this planet. And yet in our culture, we're, we're all like, oh, it's just the worst it's the absolute worst. It's hashtag end of days. This is, can't possibly get any better. So our, our, there's such a black cloud on our culture sort of going over us that we sort of think, oh, we can't, can't deal with climate change. We, got, we can't do, deal with inequality. We can't deal with the biodiversity collapse because there's no point. We're all, we're all doomed. We're all sort of terrible. That cloud passing... Uh, makes you think oh yes I do have a future oh yes we do have to deal with these things and we do and we you know the idea of you know voting for radical policies like um, basic income perhaps or or, or the, the half earth uh, which is a uh, an idea to give half the earth to nature to deal with the biodiversity collapse things that you go oh that's just that will never get that past the daily mail these days there's no way those things that sort of happen once that cloud's gone it's become yeah, they sort of become a bit inevitable, you know. They sort of become, well, obviously we have to do that. You know, we have to. But, I mean, the, the thing that describes this generation for me is uh, a girl called Sam Fuentes, who was one of the uh, kids who was shot uh, in the Parkland shooting in, in Florida. Uh, and um, she was shot in the leg and she's got shrapnel in her cheek that she can never get out. 
uh, and they did this, this, this March for Our Lives in Washington. Uh, and it was, you know, one of the, it was the largest protests in, in American history. And these teenagers had organized it. And this generation is so anxious. Their mental health is, is, is awful. They're, they're really sort of scared all the time. And she came up to tell her story. And she was so scared that she was just sick. She was just sick all over the, um, all over the stage, like whilst being filmed on TV. And she sort of recovered. And she went, I've just been sick on live TV and it feels great. And then she just launched into what she wanted to say. Uh, and spoke so passionately and so, in, so brilliantly. Uh, she was, it was so inspiring. And if you look at the difference between the millennials and the post-millennials, like the millennials was shot in school time and time and time again. But the theory was, well, there's nothing we can do about it. There's just nothing we can do about it. It'll happen again, but there's nothing we can do about it. And I think it's because of the, the massive amount of, of, of empathy that this post-millennial generation, this Generation Z are showing, that the idea that other schools could go through what they've done is just unconscionable. It's just unconscionable because they know the horror of it. They can't have it on it. So they have to go to the extent of organizing one of the largest protests in American history, they have to do something. And when you look at those as the people coming forward, all, all our sort of thing, oh, well we, well, we can't really vote for climate change, and you know, that, that sort of goes out the window. I, I, I think that the magic of the future will, 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 will come from this cloud disappearing above us. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier on. The, uh, I like the snowflake generation. I think they're actually pretty fucking pugilistic, to be quite honest. And uh, I'm quite keen on the idea of uh, a muscular tolerance. But then again, um, I've always bucked fashion. Um, Lucy? I think that now, at least in the Western world, knowledge is free. We've got the internet, we've got... Um, how to do things on YouTube, we can learn, even if we've got useless teachers, if we can actually learn how to learn, we can, we can teach ourselves. So knowledge is free, but we've now got to learn how to use our imaginations, and we've got to accept that failure is fine. If we can accept that failure is fine, and we can learn from our mistakes, and we can keep trying, I think people now have got the opportunity to do things, to change things, whereas it used to be only governments who could actually make a change. I think actually individuals can now make that change. And I think we're going to see more and more individuals or small groups of people doing things because they want to live in a better place. Susie? Just to add to that, I am so thankful for YouTube how-to videos. Uh, it means I ring my dad less, firstly. Not that that's a good thing, I love talking to my dad, but it means I have to bother him less, is what I mean. But this morning, I picked up a hire car, and I didn't have a key, it had a button, and it took me a good half an hour to try and work out how on earth to get it to start, and then I had to put it into reverse, and if it hadn't been for YouTube how-to videos, I think I'd probably still be in that car park now. Um, but the thing, the thing that I'm really positive about kind of builds on what both of you have said, is that I'm glad there are people questioning the technology and the advances that we're making as we're going. Yeah, maybe we are pessimistic, but it's it's good to check these things out. Like when we were talking about AI earlier, I was just thinking about Asimov came up with these kind of ethical problems in AI back in what the 40s or 50s, yeah. Uh, and we still we still haven't really necessarily 
solved those problems, but we still talk about them now because they're becoming relevant. And I'm really glad that we're still asking those questions. I'm glad we're asking who is building our VR worlds that we're going in and what biases might they be building into these worlds, not necessarily deliberately, but if, if all of our tech is being built by a very, uh, well, a very sort of small group of straight white men potentially like what are we lacking where are the new voices coming from that's something i'm really excited about um i think that's the that's a great way to end the panel so thank you very much to our panel um i hope you enjoyed that thank you very much for uh coming up a lot more people here than were here for my solo set earlier on you are good draws you lot um i'm just going to quickly say something which is not really connected to the panel but i would like you to know i don't know if anyone here last year saw that on this stage on the same night i think uh i was chatting to the comedian barry crimmins and uh barry also played the main comedy stage and uh i had a very interesting weekend with barry that weekend barry was a great pioneering comedian a man who fought for the bullied in society. He fought for the oppressed. Um, I'm going to tell a quick story. I'm sorry for this not being connected, but I wanted to mention it at some point because it came back to me today because it's a, a year ago. Um, Barry, talk, when we talk about the future and when we talk about, again, things like snowflakes and these words that are banded around to, to, to knock people down, uh, I want to talk to Barry about the ethics of jokes. And uh, he talked about jokes that he said, for instance, I don't, he said, I don't make jokes about cancer. He said, because I think who in the audience might have been affected by it and, and how good is the joke? Is the joke good enough for the hurt I might cause? And he fought a f lot of things. It wasn't like he you know, bowed down. And, and he fought many times and would often have to uh, deal with uh, terrible audiences. And he told me this great story. He said once he was doing a gig, he was the headline act on. And uh, he just, the, there were a couple in the front row who just seemed to really love him. He just, the, the laughter was so much and he was so pleased. And he got talking to the bar afterwards. He said, I'm glad you enjoyed the show. They said, we had a great time watching you. We only come out once a year. And uh, he said, oh, right. He said, yeah, yeah, we have a severely disabled son. And uh, there's only one person we have who can care for him. And um, so once a year they come round and we have a night out. We decide to come to comedy. And the first two acts that came on, they just kept saying the word retard over and over again. And, and, we're, and it just, you know, it struck us. And then you came on and we just knew within five minutes that you weren't that kind of human being. And he said, I realized at that point, just again about the importance of words, that words are shrapnel and you have to be careful about where you aim them. And uh, Barry died in February, and I'd just like to raise, I'd just say, to Barry. Thank you very much for coming down. Thank you very much for listening and thank you very much to all our Patreon supporters as usual. If you'd like to be one of them, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go and support everything we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network. Uh, reminder, we'll be away for a couple of weeks while we're up at the Edinburgh Fringe. So hopefully we will see some of you up there. And remember, Robin's book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, is available for pre-order now out in October. And on November 1st is our big 
launch event for that in London at King's Place uh, with Robin and some very special guests. Uh, tickets for that is 15 quid, and that includes a three uh, three pound discount off the book as well. So go to the King's Place website or the Cosmic Shambles website for details on that. We will uh, catch you all in a couple of weeks. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm-hmm.